Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Did you know that there are 7,000 languages in the world? But you didn't know that one. Did you know that each of those 7,000 languages have their own vocabularies, their own sounds, their own alphabets? Have you ever wondered, though, how these structural differences influence how we interpret the world? Lyra Baroditsky is a cognitive scientist recognized for studying how the languages we speak shape the way we think. I'm going to say that again. This is a big deal. The languages we speak actually alter and shape the way we think. After immigrating to the United States, after growing up in the USSR, she lived in Belarus, she lived in Ukraine, she eventually learned English as her fourth language, and she began to recognize how differences in language can shape an argument or exaggerate the differences between one another. Today, Lear shares how people view the world differently based on their linguistic backgrounds and how her research has provided influential insight into the fields of psychology, philosophy, and linguistics. In addition to all of this, her TED Talk is one of the most downloaded and viewed talks of all time. So she's got a lot of remarkable content to share. She's got an incredible life story. You're going to love this episode. So my friends, without further ado, please open up your Live Inspired journals, open up your minds, your hearts, and get ready to hear the opinions, the voice, and the heart of my friend, and now yours. Her name is Lyra Baroditsky. Lyra, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It is, like we talked about right before I hit record, a real honor to have you on. When you meet a new friend and they say, huh, Lara, what, what do you do for a living? How do you respond to that? Uh, I usually say that I teach and I do research and I do work on language and cognition and uh, what makes humans as smart as we are. When you answer that regard, what's the most common question you hear back? Well, people often want to know how many languages I speak or what particular languages I work on. Or some people question whether humans really are so smart, and then we can have a fun conversation about that. We're going to talk about all those things, so, so don't give away all the answers quite yet. I think we should begin, though, not in San Diego, where you currently are having this conversation with us, but a little bit farther back. I have lived my entire life in the Midwest. I've traveled around the world, but I've, I've been relatively stagnant on where my roots have been laid and where they rest. You've moved quite a bit. And I think your origin story is so remarkable. So would you take us all the way back to the beginning? I was uh, born and grew up in the Soviet Union. So I was born in Ukraine and I grew up in Belarus in Minsk. And uh, my parents and I left the Soviet Union as refugees uh, when I was 12 years old. And we moved to the Midwest, to Chicago, which is a, a great place to be rooted in the Midwest. I understand why people stay there and uh, put their roots there. And so that's where I ended up going to high school and then college at Northwestern. And then after college, uh, I uh, had a passion for cognitive science and trying to understand the mind. And so I was trying to decide on graduate schools and came to visit California for the first time and it was February. And so you can imagine the change of weather that occurs when you fly from Chicago to San Diego in February. 
And so I thought, boy, this is really unfair and I want to be on the unfair side of this equation. So uh, I chose to go to uh, graduate school at Stanford and loved it there. And then I took my first job at MIT as a professor of brain and cognitive science and then moved back to Stanford. And now I'm in San Diego uh, and slowly maximizing good weather over time and wonderful colleagues also. Occasionally, and don't, don't judge me poorly for what I'm about to say, listeners and Lara, but occasionally if I did not get a chance to read the book before the test, I would read Cliff Notes. I think quickly get caught up on all the things I missed. And I feel like you just gave us your entire life story in the Cliff Notes version. I want to go a little bit deeper into all of it. Grew up the first 12 years in Minsk. What, what was that like? I thought I had a pretty happy childhood. I was a nerdy kid. I like to, I'm an only child. I like to stay home and read books. My parents complained that I was a very difficult child. And their prime example is that I kept asking them for more math problems to solve. So they were just deeply annoyed by me. So that was the the big problem that I caused for them as a kid. But basically the, the simple nerdy child childhood you could imagine. You got caught up in geopolitics. The world was shifting all around you and certainly within Belarus. Were you aware that you were part of history? Well, all of us are part of history, right? Whether we want to or not. <laughs> we're all, we all live in a world that's so complex and so much larger uh, than us. It was a really significant move to move from the Soviet Union. We, we left right before the collapse of the Soviet Union to move from Minsk to Chicago. You went to a whole other world. You know, not only were we speaking, having to speak a new language, but things that people took to be reality things that people took to be incontrovertible truths about how the world worked completely changed within a month. So it was a very, very big shift to make uh, as a kid. Did you speak English at all growing up? Yeah, I, I was studying English in school, but I had never spoken to anyone who had ever spoken to a native English speaker. So my teachers, you know, learned English from other people who also had never <laughs> spoken yeah. to English speakers because the Soviet Union was very insular, so... So you moved to Chicago. Sometimes when you move suburbs in Chicago, it might be difficult to make new friends and feel like you fit in. You're moving around the world to a radically different part of the world. What was it like for you uh, fitting in at age 12 and 13 and then going forward? You know, there's this um, experience that most people have that you can't remember the first few years of your life. So, you know, usually people don't have really well-formed memories before they're four or five. And I feel like my first year in um, Skokie, Illinois, which is where we moved to, I have very few memories from that year, almost because it, what, everything was so new. I mean, the theory of why we don't remember things from our infancy is that you don't yet have knowledge frames and like these containers to put information into. And everything was so new, I feel like I didn't have a way to interpret almost anything that was happening around me. And so I have very few memories of that year, except I knew that I really wanted to speak English well because I was frustrated. I, I'd always been a verbal kid and I was frustrated not being able to make a joke or participate and make myself clear. And so that was my project for the first year is just to try to try to get fluent in English. How long did it take you to get fluid? I think I learned pretty quickly. I was very focused on it. So within a year, I spoke basically the way that I speak now. But there are definitely some hiccups along the way. There, are, I had trouble pronouncing uh, English R's. And, but there was one boy in my homeroom whose R's I could emulate. And so I started speaking, speaking like him and then later learned that he uh, had a speech impediment. So I had acquired, willingly acquired a speech impediment later <laughs> corrected. Was his name John O'Leary? Because I, I struggled with R's for the majority of my life, still do sometimes. It's clearly not that important to success in life. <laughs> right. So language. So your passion is, is English as a 12-year-old. You probably in part that you want to fit in when did it become even more than just English when did it become this real passion like I want to learn more about language I had this wonderful teacher in high school Mr. Matucci he was our European history teacher he did this for me and I think he did this for so many other students that he really introduced us to the joy of thinking and it's a weird thing to say that it would take you until high school to think that thinking might be fun or that just like the pure joy of working through ideas in your mind, but he really had a way of getting us involved in debates and discussing these big topics in European history. 
I was a very argumentative child. It's occurred to me how often the things that we were trying to discuss were the disagreement was hinging on one word, the way that you use this word freedom, for example, is different from the way that I use this word freedom, or the way I use it in this sentence is actually a different sense of it than in this sentence. So it seems like I'm making a coherent argument, but in fact, I'm using two very different uh, words, even though they sound like the same word, um, right? And so that got me thinking about how much of these extremely important ideas that we base our whole society around are things that are negotiated in language and how much we are often fooled by language or led uh, by language into complex territory that we might not be able to engage in without that complex network of words. And so it just got me fascinated in language that way. So you go on to Northwestern. When, when were you first introduced to the work of Noam Chomsky? You know, I actually was introduced to Noam Chomsky's political work in high school because there was a, a film out at the time called Manufacturing Consent about his, his political activism. And so that was the, fir the first time that I really got exposed to him. But then the first time I took a, a language class, a uh, linguistics class in college, we were assigned Steve Pinker's book, The Language Instinct, that had just come out then. And of course, in that book, Steve Pinker very strongly advocates one of the versions of a view of language that Noam Chomsky had proposed at that time. And so that's when I first uh, started hearing about ideas like universal grammar and things like that. Tell me about that. It's a really beautiful idea, hypothesis. And the idea is that even though we have 7,000 languages spoken around the world and they all sound different, they all have different words and so on, there is a possibility that actually underneath all of those differences, there is some universal structure that's the same, that's generating all of these languages. And so the way that Noam Chomsky would uh, sometimes propose this argument uh, is with a thought experiment. He would say, you know, if a Martian were to come to earth and observe all of the world's languages, the Martian wouldn't even think that there are necessarily different languages. They would sound to the Martian, which we imagine has a very analytical mind. They would sound to the Martian as if they're all one language is spoken with different accents. And so I say this is a beautiful idea because it would be so elegant to find this one root structure that underlies all of these languages that are so different. And anyone who's ever tried to learn another language, especially one from a different language family, does not have the Martian experience, right? Uh, humans don't think, oh, I'm learning Mandarin. It's exactly like English. This, this is not going to be a problem. Tomorrow I'll learn Arabic. It's just like speaking English, but with a different accent. That's just not the human experience, right? So if it were the case that we could discover some underlying structure that produces all, all this great variety and explains the incredible complexity within each language as well, that would be awesome. Often people describe that idea of universal grammar as something that uh, Noam Chomsky discovered. So they will say Noam Chomsky discovered universal grammar. In fact, what he did was he proposed, basically he said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if there was one and maybe we should look for one then no one has found one. So rather than it being a scientific fact, it remains like an interesting idea or an aspiration, uh, which I still think is a really cool aspiration, though all of the evidence, empirical evidence that we have suggests that it's the variety of, uh, of human languages that is the real empirical fact to be explained, that it's not that they're so similar to one another. They are similar in some ways, but the fact that they're so diverse uh, and the structures can differ so much and the way people think can differ so much as a result, that's the real richness of the human experience that's to be explained and understood. Mm. Well, and that's, that's it in a nutshell, the chicken and the egg argument. So you mentioned the language is so different and because of that, the thought that the individuals within the cultures have might be so different. Tell me why you think that. Yeah, so certainly the causality goes in both directions and sometimes in cycles of causality over time. But the reason that we're pretty sure that there are lots of cases where language causes you to think in a different way is that we can make experiments where we can teach people a new way to talk and see how that changes how they think. Or we can disable people from using a particular part of their language system and see how that changes how they think. Or we can ask bilinguals to switch from one language to another in a context and see how that changes how they think. 
uh, all of those are different empirical tools that we use to say, okay, if I can turn this knob of language, I can make it talk differently, and that changes how you think, mm -hmm. then we know that causality can at least go in, the, uh, in that direction. And then you can start observing all of the differences that exist across all of these different language groups. Can you share a study that you have seen or helped lead where those who speak multiple languages will think differently based upon which language they're thinking in or utilizing at that time? There's this really interesting question about bilinguals, right? So yeah. are bilinguals, are they basically walking around with two different brains inside them, right? So you have like, let's say I'm a Russian English bilingual, am I, do I walk around with a Russian brain and an English brain? Uh, and so when I'm speaking Russian, I, I think like a Russian speaker. When I'm speaking English, I, I think like an English speaker. Or am I some kind of uh, perfect blend of the two, right? So I'm, because I'm a bilingual, I'm different always from a monolingual of Russian or a monolingual uh, of English. So let me give you a, a simple example from the work of Viorica Marian at Northwestern University. And she's tested Russian-English bilinguals. What she finds is if you ask people to recollect autobiographical memories, like tell me about a birthday party or tell me about uh, an evening with friends or some difficulty you overcame. And she will ask them either in Russian or in English. What uh, she finds is the kinds of memories that people come up with are different and the way they tell the stories uh, is also different. So if they're telling the story in English, they're much more likely to be the protagonist of the story. Uh, they're going to be, there's going to be a lot of I, so I did this and I, and so they're like the hero of the story and they're not going to be a lot of other people involved uh, that are important, like actually <laughs> important contributors to the story. Whereas if they're telling a story in Russian, they're, it's a lot more likely to be we, or it might be that someone else is actually the protagonist of the story. And it's things that are happening to you that you're, you're talking about rather than things that you are doing onto the world. It's showing that here asking people the same question, you know, tell me about a birthday party, but in a different language, cues different cultural values and mm -hmm. cues them to think about themselves, to think about their own memories in different ways and focus on things in different ways. When you read that study and look through the data that it represents, do you find yourself nodding your head because you personally are Russian speaking and English speaking? Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? <laughs> You know, I've done a, a work on Russian and on English and also lots of other languages. And when I'm working on Russian, uh, for me, those are the hardest studies to do because I can't believe that there would be a difference between Russian and English speakers because it seems like everyone should be able to see both of those things, right? And so when I'm making the stimuli, I think, how could not everyone just see it, see it <laughs> this way? And then I'm always, I'm always shocked when I'm working on a language that I'm not familiar with or that I don't speak well. And it seems to me like, wow, really? They could really think this way? That's incredible. Like, that's incredible. But when I'm working on Russian, I think the study will never work because everyone must see the world this way. When I was first introduced to you as via TED, mm -hmm. you gave a TED talk, I believe 2017, almost 20 million views at this point. When you hear that even, are you blown away that a talk you gave around linguistics and the differences between various societies that 20 million people have said, yeah, I want more of this. Like, are, are you amazed that the work you've been researching has such a desirous audience? Well, I'm really grateful to be able to translate. I mean, it's not just work that I did, but also work from other colleagues in my field. And I'm really grateful that people find it useful. So that's, it's always nice when things that you've done, other people find useful. But I think the reason that people find it useful is that it's not just a story about, oh, look at these other people somewhere else that do something weird that's different from you. It's really a story about each one of us, right? So it's really saying, look at the way your language is structured and look at the patterns that your language creates for how you think. And so it allows you to take this thing that we take for granted, the language that we speak is like the air that we breathe. We, we, we don't even notice it as a, as, as a thing around us, but it allows you to kind of take, take that mirror, turn it on yourself and say, well, why do I think the things that I think? And isn't it weird that I think this and that it could have been all of these other ways. So I think partially people resonate with it because it allows them to 
think in much broader terms about their own minds and ask also how, why do I think the way that I think and how could I think differently? And could, could there be more different ways of thinking about these basic things that I never even considered? Were you amazed by that feedback? Because you, you walk in perhaps thinking that, that it's around language and it ends up being really completely around thinking and how one perceives their own life. The way I got into it is really wanting to answer the question of how do humans get to be so smart? And uh, it became very clear early on that there is no way to answer that question without looking at language because language is one of the things that makes us so smart. And uh, I actually was working on my first project in graduate school was on metaphor and I wanted to understand how we think about time, but there was this inconvenient understanding in the literature at the time, people said that language didn't shape the way we thought. And I wrote my first paper and I gave it to my graduate advisor at the time and he read it and he said, you know, everything here is fine, the experiments are fine, but if what you're saying is right, then uh, that would imply that if people in another language had different metaphors, then they would think about time differently. But we already know that language doesn't shape thought, therefore something in here must be wrong. So go back and figure out what's wrong, <laughs> what you did wrong and come back. And I thought, well, maybe I'm completely wrong about this or maybe language does shape the way you think. And if you actually did find people with different metaphors, they would think about time differently. And so that was the next thing I did. And I thought this would be a one, like I would do one experiment, square it away, and then go on happily studying how people think about time and other complex things and not really worry about language because that wasn't really my specialty at the time. Mm. Um, but, you know, one thing led to another and 20 years later, I do a lot of work on language. <laughs> Let's talk about that. So how does language affect our view of time? I'd, I'm, I'm going to guide you through a few of these kind of broad topics, but time is a really cool one to start with. Well, so one thing we notice across a lot of languages is that to talk about time, people use words from space, right? So in English, we talk about the best things being ahead of us, the worst things being behind us. So we talk about moving meetings forward and back. Uh, we talk about approaching deadlines or deadlines approaching us, things like that. In other languages, people use other metaphors. So for example, in Mandarin, it's common to use vertical terms to talk about time. So the past is up. So the last month is the up month, the next month's month is the down month. And there's lots more variety beyond that. And so what I and others have spent a lot of time doing is looking at how people use spatial ideas to understand time and how that differs across languages and cultures. And what we found is incredible variety around the world, right? So you start with a simple idea of how do you think about Monday with relation to Tuesday or March with relation to April? And um, even with these simple things, you can find incredible diversity in how people lay out time in their minds. So for English speakers, for one thing, even the direction in which your language is written makes a difference. So if you read a language that's written from left to right, like English, you're likely to lay time out from left to right. If you speak a language like Hebrew Arabic, it's written from right to left, you're going to lay things out from right to left. And this isn't just to do with time, by the way, lots of things in our mind get laid out according to how our languages are written. So if you ask, for example, people draw me a picture that shows Bill is giving flowers to Susie. If you ask an English or an Italian speaker to do this, they'll draw Bill on the left and Susie on the right and flowers being handed from left to right. If you ask an Arabic speaker to do this, they'll draw Bill on the right and Susie on the left. And so even just how a simple event unfolds in your mind unfolds in this plane that is directed by the direction that your language is written. And it even transfers to things like you show people a soccer goal being scored and you either show them the original or a flipped version. So the goal is either being scored from left to right or right to left. They'll say that the goal is more beautiful if it's being scored from left to right, if they read from left to right, than uh, the reverse than if they read from right to left. Referees are more likely to call a foul if the action is from left to right, if they are speakers of a language that's written from left to right. So, there, so it's just this basic feature of how a language is written is already organizing so much of our internal mental life. But then beyond that, there are metaphors that we use. So I told you in English, we put the past behind us and the future in front of us. So we say the, the best is ahead, the worst is behind. There's some languages that do the reverse. So for example, the Aymara, this is a, uh, a language spoken in Bolivia, 
they put the past in front and the future behind. So when work by Rafael Nunez and his colleagues shows that even the way people use their bodies as they're talking about time, as they're talking about the past and the future is different here. So when people are talking about the past there, they'll say, oh, that was in the olden days and they'll gesture far in front of them. And the reason they will give you, so people might say, wait, why would the past be in front? That's so weird. Like, of course, you know, before this work was done, a lot of scientists argued, well, of course, the future has to be in front because we mostly walk forwards and not backwards. And we have eyes on the front of our heads, not on the back of our heads. It makes perfect sense that the way we do it in English should be the way everyone does it. Well, it turns out other people don't do it that way. And so for the Ayamara, they say, look, uh, the past is known, it's manifest. That's why you can see it, it's in front of your eyes. Whereas the future is unknown, that's why it's behind you, right? So you can't, you can't see it. And once it becomes the present and the past, then it become, comes into your visible space. So a complete reversal of uh, how time flows. Time can also flow not with respect to your body. So some work that I did in um, with Alice Gibby in Australia uh, looked at a group that lays out time not left to right or right to left or front to back or back to front, but instead uh, east to west. I take a bunch of pictures that have a, a temporal sequence, like pictures of my grandfather at different ages, for example. I give them to someone there and I say, can you just lay these out so that they're in the correct order? So they're shuffled. The person will lay them out. Well, the way an English, American English speaker would do it is from left to right. So youngest picture to the oldest picture. People in this linguistic community lay it out from east to west. So what that means is if they're sitting facing south, the cards will go from left to right. But if they're sitting facing north, the cards will go from right to left. And if they're sitting facing east, the cards will come towards their body, right? So, so I got to ask, are, even in learning that, weren't you blown away? I, I thought it was the coolest magic trick I've ever seen because these simple tasks of can you lay these things out in a big right. order are done by millions of people. They're part of child IQ tests. So they've been administered all over the world. And here I was making this insane prediction that if we asked this particular group of people to do this task, they would do this rotation. And you know, no one had seen it. And uh, I went with uh, Alice Gaby. She was doing a lot of field work in that community at the time. And we were doing the experiment together and just watching it happen. I just, it's a cool thing about science when you can create a hypothesis that seems crazy. And then you can actually with your own eyes see the data form. It's a cool magic trick, as you said, that left to right or right to left or forward coming towards you. Great, east to west. But how does this actually affect them day in and day out? Uh, it's a wonderful question. It's a, and it's a hard question to answer because the things that we can measure most precisely that we can be most sure about are relatively simple things, right? And then once you get to more complex things, how people are affected in their day-to-day -day life, uh, first of all, there are many more things that then affect any particular decision, right? So the, the set of things you have to measure becomes more complex. So I would love to have a great answer to that question. And uh, I hope I live long enough to be able to study more and more complex things. I'll tell you one thing that made me very excited in just being able to spend a little time in this community is, you know, folks who speak languages like this. So in, in this community in Pumperao, um, you don't use words like left and right. Instead, you uh, orient everything in north, south, east, and west. As a result, people there are able to stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. Mm. So, uh, because we, by humans, what we always meant was, uh, you know, either American English speakers, or British English speakers, or German speakers, you know, uh, Western. Western folks, uh, usually sophomores at universities that get, you know, take psychology courses and we test them. And then we say, those are humans. Uh, right. And we always knew that there were other creatures who could orient better than these humans that we had tested. And we always had some biological excuse. Uh, so we would say, well, sure, salmon can do it, but they have magnetic scales or birds, you know, they have magnets in their beaks or, Ants uh, foraging in Tunisia can do it, but they have the special way of detecting the angle of incident light from celestial bodies that we don't have. So we'd always have some biological excuse for why we couldn't do it until researchers started working in these communities and observing, hey, wait a second, these humans are orienting better than all of our scientific 
understanding suggests humans should be able to do. That opens up your mind to the possibility of what else can we do with our minds that we think that we can't do, that we could do just if we had a cultural practice that encouraged it, right? When, when this research was first being done, again, people thought this is impossible, like humans can't do this. And then it turns out not only can you do it, but it's actually not even that hard to learn. So the fact that we never even thought to try <laughs> you know, is, shows you just how limited we are by what we're used to, as opposed to what's actually possible. Um, and so looking across cultures, seeing how other people do it, for me, the thing that's so exciting is seeing the world of possibility in, in large and say, okay, actually, uh, our minds are capable of a whole lot of other realities than the one that we happen to exist in. So just because you're used to something doesn't mean that that's the only way it has to be. It could be lots and lots of other ways. Is technology changing this group that you spend time with? So as they first get a compass and then a map and then roads and then eventually an iPhone in their left pocket, will that change the way they lay out those cards of your grandfather? Uh, of course, it's always possible. Language is just one technology, right? Uh, it's one of the oldest technologies that we have, but it's uh, certainly if uh, we're saying that language, and uh, which is this cultural technology that we pass on across generations, affects the way we think, certainly other things do too. But um, let me tell you a couple of anecdotes from other researchers that were first working in communities like this. Uh, when they were just trying to test how good are these people actually at orienting. So they would go out with, you know, a GPS machine and a compass and all of these things. And they would take people to new locations where they hadn't been before. And they might travel by Jeep and by horse and walking. And they were in a place with limited visibility. So they didn't have any landmarks they could see. And occasionally they would stop and say, hey, can you point to this location or that location, right? And then they would measure. Um, with their fancy devices that they had. And the speakers of these languages interpreted the researchers' task as trying to calibrate their devices. They're like, well, clearly your device doesn't work very well. So I'm just helping you calibrate your device because I'm clearly right. And this device can't be that useful, right? So at least their first passive interaction with all of this stuff is not, oh, how useful, it's more like, yeah, I can help you with your crappy device. Things can shift with all kinds of cultural artifacts, not just with language. It, it is fascinating. You mentioned in the answer a moment ago, gestures. And, and gestures, mm -hmm. it turns out, are affected also by language and culture. Would you just un unpack that for us a little bit? Sure. So um, just to give you, to stick with this example of um, absolute orientation, suppose you're telling a story about something that happened to you and you say, oh, and then uh, my friend came up and then you gesture, normally an American English speaker will gesture, if it's something, you know, like a, a friend is approaching, they'll gesture uh, as uh, the friend approaches with respect to you. So the motion is if your friend came up from your right and from the front, your gesture will come towards you from the right, you know, towards your body. Mm -hmm. Speakers in these languages will gesture the actual cardinal direction in which the motion happened, right? Imagine anytime you're telling a story where something happened, your memory is oriented in absolute space and your gestures automatically are encoding where that, uh, where those things are. And I would see this all the time in this community. So you might be talking to someone and say, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And they'll say, oh, I'm going fishing. And they'll point uh, to a location. Uh, one time this guy said, I'm going fishing. And he immediately realized he just given away the location of his secret fishing spot. And so he started waving his hand around, <laughs> you know, fishing. So people there not only mean those gestures precise, but I also ex expect other people to interpret them as being precise. Something else I found fascinating through what you've shared in the past is gestures are used not only when you and I are having this talk right now, but if, if I was thinking, if you and I were on a phone call, I would also still be using my hands to, yeah. to gesture. That's fascinating, actually. Tell me why we use gestures even when there's no one in the room. Uh, well, gestures help us think. So they are a way of externalizing our thoughts. Uh, often it's a way of creating a placeholder or something that you can see for yourself in a way that you know helps you recall a word or form a thought around it. 
uh, in the same way that you might make a diagram for yourself or uh, something like that, except these gestures happen in, uh, in real time. But yeah, most people think that gestures are for the, for the listener and they are uh, helpful and used by listeners. But uh, just as you said, we gesture even when we're on the phone and no one can see us. So clearly they're also useful to us as tools for thinking. One more example around all of this. And then I, I have a couple of questions we'll be wrapping up with here in a moment. In, in English, we don't really use gender when we are referring to nouns. Like mm -hmm. we use it only when we're referring to the gender of an individual. But in many languages, maybe even most languages, they do use gender when they're referring to inanimate objects. Why is that? And then also, what is the effect of that? Languages differ a lot in what kinds of gender systems they have. And the linguistic term gender really just means kind or class. So for example, some languages have 17 genders or 13 genders where by gender, what is meant is a grammatical class, a, a way that a certain set of nouns are treated. So there might be a, a grammatical class for weapons or a grammatical class for shiny things or a grammatical class for canines. But in a lot of European languages, the gender systems are masculine, feminine, sometimes also third gender neuter. And historically that comes in Indo-European languages Languages try to regularize and systematize over time. It's not something they're doing intentionally, it just tends to happen over time as uh, people speak languages. And so there is a point in Indo-European language history where it so happened that names of biologically female things ended in say an ah sound, uh, tended to end in an ah sound and uh, names of biologically male things tended to end in not an ah sound. And so all of the other names of things that sounded like they had an ah ending became treated grammatically as if they were feminine. And things that didn't have an ah ending became treated grammatically as, as if they were masculine. So it's a grammatical structural property. But then once you start speaking a language like this and you have all these things that you're referring to as if they were male or female using the same uh, pronouns, using the same articles, using the same adjective endings. What we found in, in our research and in other labs too, is they start to acquire feminine properties. So if like the moon is grammatically feminine in your language, you're more likely to think of it in feminine terms than if it's grammatically masculine, right? The word for bridge is masculine in your language. You might be more likely to say that bridges are strong and towering and long and things like that. But if the word for bridge is feminine, then you might uh, say that they're elegant and beautiful and these are their stereotypical things. Of course, uh, bridges have all of these properties, it's just which one you focus on uh, first or which one comes to mind first that shifts around. Is that the key to your work that you want us to recognize that the words we use influence the thoughts we have, the lives we lead and the cultures we build? Yeah, so uh, we're constantly creating a very, very complex world of ideas that we live inside of. And one of the ways that we create that world of ideas is through language. Uh, and we inherit incredible wealth from our languages, incredible intellectual wealth. There's so much intellectual work that has gone into the creation of every language over generations, thousands of generations. But with that intellectual wealth also comes a lot of other stuff that are just accidents of history, like this grammatical gender stuff. It's just an accident of history. And it's not really that meaningful <laughs> you know, for the moon to be masculine and feminine. And yet we uh, accept these, these structures and take them as meaningful and think along, those along the lines that our languages create for us. What I'm always trying to get people to think about is how could it be different, like do you have to be, some of the things that we inherit from language are so incredibly useful, mm -hmm. but then some of it is also limiting. Uh, a colleague of mine, um, Ed Hutchins, uh, talks about language and culture as limiting cognitive entropy, right? Mm -hmm. So there are all these ways that we could think, but languages and cultures create these grooves for our minds to travel. And we very often fail to look outside of the grooves and say, well, could it be? Could it be different? And with the example of gender, let me just give you a, 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 an example. There's, there are debates in lots of languages, including English right now about pronouns and whether there should be 
neuter, neutral pronouns and whether we should have a gender pronouns on in all cases or in some cases or other. But anyway, whatever, whatever language you speak, the set of pronouns that are available to you are going to be slightly different or very different from all other languages, right? So for example, in English, we have he and she, so we mark gender, but only on third person singular pronouns. We don't mark gender on first person pronouns. We, we don't have different words for I, some languages do. Uh, we don't have different words for you based on gender, some languages do. We don't have different words for we, <laughs> we don't have different words for, for plural they, you know? And so when people are fighting about gender pronouns in English, they're fighting specifically about third person singular pronouns. And there will be some people who say, well, if we get rid of gender on pronouns in English, the whole language will fall apart and become incomprehensible. Well, you know, there are lots of languages that don't have gender on pronouns and they're just fine. But also, why is it specifically third, third person singular pronouns that you're so wedded to, right? It's an accident of history. You know, if you thought about it in that broader context of like, there are actually lots of ways of doing this. And maybe we should be arguing for adding gender to first person pronouns or second person pronouns, right? There's so many arguments we could be having, but they tend to be very, these very limited arguments about what we're used to rather than asking, well, how is it that we want to think? What purpose do we want these things to have? And then we can create the kinds of culture and the kinds of society we want by first being mindful about what is actually necessary, what is desired, as opposed to what is just an accident of history and we could have done it differently. For those of us, and you might have one interview in you right now who are primarily one language speaking individuals. I, I did take three years of Latin in high school, uh, although I, I need to go back to the textbooks to be reminded of how to speak it clearly. Mm -hmm. What encouragement would you give us to say, gosh, you at any age, John, whether 45 or, or 11 or 75, there's benefit in having at least two languages for this reason. What are they? Oh, well, the best reason to learn a language is if you want to go and speak that language. Uh, you want to go and talk to people there. Make, I mean, you make incredible connections with people in a whole other world, right? You can eavesdrop on people on the bus. You can order off the menu. You can, uh, you know, ask... Uh, someone on a date in the piazza if you want to. There, there, there's so many things you could do. The, the best reason to learn a language is you just want to speak that language. Uh, that There's absolutely nothing that will compare to the joy that you have to opening up that world and being able to make those connections. But I do hear people often say, well, I'm too old to learn another language. Really what people mean is I believe I'm too old to pass as native-like in another language, to learn a language so well that people think that I'm a native speaker of that language. And this to me is always puzzling because I, I think, well, wait, why do you want to pass for native-like? Are you trying to become an international spy? Because that's the only reason I can think of for why you would need to be, to sound exactly like a native speaker. Because there's so many levels of proficiency that make languages fun to speak and useful to speak and useful for making connections with others. Just learn a little bit, you're already better off than learning nothing. It does get harder to learn to become perfectly fluent in languages as you get older, which means that the perfect time to start is now, right? So people often say, well, I should have started 10 years ago. Well, unless you invent a time machine, that's not gonna happen. So <laughs> the perfect time to start a language is now. It'll be harder at any further point in the future. So if you're thinking about uh, wanting to make a connection, either with uh, a language that your ancestors spoke in the past or a literature that you particularly like or a type of music or a type of philosophy that you like, the perfect time to start learning is exactly right now. It's also the perfect time to start living. <laughs> it is right now. And so you you are challenging us and inviting us and encouraging us to view the world differently and, and embrace the gifts that come out of the uh, out of the complexity that we see in front of us. Lear, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together mm -hmm. and uh, honor to have you on. So we're going to go through these. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. Okay. The very first question, it might be difficult for you because you're so well read, but the first question is, what is the most impactful or most influential book that you've ever read? I'm going to give you a very Russian answer. And uh, for a lot of Russians, their favorite book is The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. And it's a magic realism 
novel that ties together a lot of history and political satire and commentary on the human condition. And uh, it's just a, it's a book I read at, at, you know, it was a new genre for me to read ma magical realism. And again, it, it opened up this whole world and tied a lot of things together. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you had as a little girl growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Well, I don't know that I've changed that much, unfortunately. People say that all kinds of good things are supposed to happen to you as you get older, and I haven't experienced them yet. But um, I, I was always a, a very argumentative person, and not in a way that I cared to win arguments necessarily, but I just really wanted to ask a lot of questions and explore and not stop. And um, I think that's a really useful skill as a scientist, right? To continuously be open to things being different than you think they are and to continue to try to probe and say, well, is this true? Is this true? And how do we know this? So I would, I, I would keep that and keep going. Yeah, I'll give you one more, which is um, I, I grew up without any entitled, any sense of entitlement because uh, obviously in the Soviet Union, you weren't really entitled to a whole lot of stuff. Um, and also when I came to America as a refugee, I was just amazed at uh, all the opportunities that I now, new opportunities that I had. And I never thought about things being unfair to me in that context, because it seemed like I had won the lottery by just like arriving in this place where life was gonna be so much easier <laughs> and so many more things would be available. And over time, I've become much more of an entitled American. And now I worry about, you know, whether or not things are fair to me and whether or not someone's in the right place in line or who got this award or like things like that. And I really wish I'd held on to that complete lack of entitlement where you can just look at the world of opportunity around you and say, oh, wow, I am so lucky that by no cleverness of my own, my parents happened to bring me here and now I have this incredible set of opportunities. Great answer. If your apartment, your home, this place where you reside in San Diego caught fire and all living things are out, your friends, family, roommates, animals, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one physical thing. What one item would you come racing back outside with? I don't think I need anything in here. My friends would say my phone. I'm very much addicted to my phone, but that's easy to replace and it's all backed up. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day mm -hmm. and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, Mm -hmm. You want to have that nice long visit with any random person in the future, I think would be if you chose a completely random person from, say, 200 years from now, uh, I think you would learn a lot more from talking to that person than talking to almost anyone in the past. So live inspired first, my friends. We are 400 episodes in and Lyra just blew my mind again. We're going into, into the future with an unknown person who is on the bench with her. That's right. They still have benches, apparently. But other than that, the world could be completely different. Everything else is different, but they do have benches. What, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, I, I've been so lucky to, to, get, to get so much good advice. But probably professionally, the advice uh, that I found most helpful is to just try to find the, sm the absolute smartest people that you're most scared of and go and talk to those people that you will always learn the most. If you're, you know, if, if your debate opponent is, is really smart, you're gonna learn a lot more in that conversation than anything else. And winning the debate is not the important thing. You're, everything is gonna go a lot better if you just find really, really, really smart people. They will sharpen your own thinking and all, all of you will get further. So don't be, don't be afraid to, in the big leagues and put yourself out there and take a take a risk even if um on the surface you fail you actually learn a lot more by doing that great advice what advice would you give yourself at age 20 don't listen to older people <laughs> i'm just kidding that's a logic joke uh there's no way to follow or not follow that advice is if you don't follow the advice then you actually have followed the advice uh, if you do follow the advice, then you actually haven't followed the advice. It's <laughs> I got you. <laughs> yeah. So don't listen to older people. That's what I would say. Then the final question, Lyra. It has been said that all great scientists and thinkers and leaders and friends can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Mm -hmm. How would you like your one sentence to read? You know, I think of myself as just a human. So uh, that's really all that's necessary. I'm just a human person curious about how the world works and try to understand it. But also I just, 
try to exist as a human and I hope people treat me that way. <laughs> That's all Dr. Lyra Borditsky, we are so grateful that you uh, that you see yourself in that light and that you remind us to see the world through the complexity and the beauty in its whole. Like just because we've seen it through one lens, through one language for our entirety, doesn't mean that there's not uh, a different, maybe even better way to see it going forward. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. I'm very grateful for you, my friends. That is Dr. Lyra Borditsky. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, today's conversation with Lyra reminds me of a quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Words create worlds. The words we speak create the world in which we live. Words create worlds. The words we speak and write hold within themselves a tremendous power and a tenacity for good or for evil. They can exclude or embrace. They can heal or humiliate. They can lift up or they can tear down. How many of us remember times when we felt excluded or embraced? When we heard words that healed or humiliated? When we listened in as someone else was lifted up or torn down, my friends, words create worlds. They can shape and they can form. They can break down. They can destroy. They can elevate. Today, I want to really challenge and invite us to be very conscious, very intentional in the words we speak into a marketplace that is longing for hope, for faith, for unity, for love, and for the belief that the best is yet to come. As I mentioned earlier, Lyra's 2017 TED Talk captivated millions of listeners and viewers. If you enjoyed hearing from a TED speaker, well, don't miss out on our TED speakers playlist. That's right. Lyra's not the first. She won't be the last TED speaker to join us on the Live Inspired podcast. From happiness expert Sean Aker to best-selling author and my dear friend Brene Brown, the playlist highlights the thinkers, the doers, the idea generators. Check it out. Visit me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. I want to thank you for tuning in week after week, for sharing the good news, and for believing like I do, and I really do believe this, that the best days remain in front of us. So for this time, and until next time, words create worlds, and this is your day. Live inspired. Well, Acuity Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Acuity Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.